Christian Parenting. Love Do Good Podcast, and I'm your host, Christy Hayes, mom at a two, founder of Be Strong Story, and author of the children's book, The Lunchbox Note, a true story of how a lunchbox note that said, Be Strong, Protect the Weak, Love Everyone, changed our life and created a mission for our family. Join us each week for conversations that inspire our families to live out true compassion, kindness, and what it looks like to be loved and do good in our communities. It may take us out of our comfort zones, you guys, but I promise it will put us on a path to see others, love others, and quite possibly change the world. Hey everyone, welcome to Be Love Do Good Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Hayes. Hey, make sure that you are following us on Instagram or Facebook. It's just Be Strong Story. That is the name of our company. You can go to bestrongstory.com and learn more about us. But in July, we are replaying some of my favorite episodes with people I think are so um, just important and in, in influencing how we think about things and one of the things I love to do on here is really encourage us to see different perspectives and story matters and getting out of our own perspective and seeing it in the life of others is how our heart changes and so one of the persons that I would love for us to make sure that we are learning from is Jamar Tisby. Jamar is um, an incredible historian. He's written best-selling books. One of the books that we talk about today is How to Fight Racism. And we talk about um, not only that book, but the kids edition. And so I know summer is kind of a time that we love to help our kids read more, or we say you have to read this many books, or it's a challenge. And so this is a great book for you to read with your kids, How to Fight Racism, um, the Young Readers Edition. We talk about so many things, but it's just this incredible perspective. And um, I just so appreciate his kindness and graciousness to teach us and help us learn things um, that we might not have thought about. And so I can't wait for you to listen to my um, interview with Jamar Tisby. Hey, Jamar, thanks so much for being here today with our Beloved Do Good podcast listeners. We're so happy to have you, and I just want to thank you for being here. I am thoroughly honored. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. We're going to have a great conversation. We are going to have a great conversation. So if you could see me right now, which you can, but our listeners can't, you can see that I have your book, How to Fight Racism, um, with all my stickies on it. And I have underlines (laughs) and all those good things because I have so much that I want to talk with you about and so much that I know that we can learn and our listeners can learn as we want to teach these kids that we have um, how to do just this, how to include, how to love others well. Um, but before we get into that, I kind of just want to know about you before you were the historian, yep. before you were the best tel- selling, uh, times selling author before all those things, what was life like for you, Jamar? <laughs> well, actually I was a teacher. I was um, a middle school teacher. I taught sixth grade science and social studies for a number of years. And then I was a middle school principal grades five through eight. So all of these conversations about educating kids and students, thats that was my first career. Um, grew up near Chicago and uh, never, ever thought I would be a teacher. My mom was a teacher for 37 years, and I was like, mm, that's good for others, but not for me. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the way life goes, after I graduated from college, I 
I was an American studies major, which nobody knows what that is, <laughs> much less an employer. So I was like, well, I can't really get a job with this, but I can use my education to teach others. And so I joined uh, Teach for America. And that's actually how I got down to where I am now in um, the uh, Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side and have been here for, you know, a long time. <laughs> That's amazing. So junior high is my love. The junior that's I was a youth pastor for junior high kids oh, for 15 hey. years. And whenever I say wow. I love junior hires, people give me this look like, are you right. crazy? <laughs> <laughs> it is such a dynamic age. I mean, you see them growing up right before your eyes. Um, I think every age and stage has its own blessings and burdens sure. and, and uh, middle school is no different. But yeah, I learned to love those folks in that, that season of life. I love, I have a middle schooler now, a boy, a 13 year old. And my most favorite thing is to have all the boys over and just to hear their conversation Mm -hmm. and the quirkiness Mm -hmm. and all the moms say, thank you so much for being the mom who actually wants all these (laughs) stinky boys at your house. I love it. I mean, I don't know what it is, but it's, I'm a definitely an older kid mom. The babies, like I was in survival mode, but the older they get, I just, it's because they start to soak in what we've actually been telling them for year Mm. over and over and over and over again. So I love that as a parent and I love that you um, did that as a teacher and the work we work with a school right now. And every day I come home and I'm like, I cannot believe those teachers do what they do. It's incredible. I, oh, my goodness. Incredible. I'm looking work. back now and I'm like, I, I don't know if I could do it all over again. Getting up so early, oh my gosh. Uh, you know, teaching throughout the day, dozens, if not hundreds of personalities, grading papers, lesson planning. And then the teachers right now should all get a gold star and gold medals oh for gosh. doing this in a pandemic. And layered on top of that is social media just in general, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's a whole different wrinkle on gossip and bullying and and all of this stuff. It is incredible. So shout out to the educators, right? Um, Including homeschoolers. And wow, y'all are the real MVP. (laughs) They are. So I agree 100%. So thank you so much, teachers. Um, So now you're teaching in a different way, but you're still teaching. You're still educating. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. And you have two books, um, Color of Compromise and then How to Fight Racism is your newest book. And then your book that will be coming out January 4th is one of the ones that I am like going to get immediately, which is How to Fight Racism Youth Edition. Tell us a little bit about kind of your journey now that you're teaching in a different way. Thank you. I'm, I'm trying to be a scholar for the digital age, right? So uh, the pandemic sort of forced us to rethink what a lot of things mean and look like from church to the classroom. And so uh, instead of teaching within four walls and to a set group of students, which there's incredible beauty and power in that, for me, my direction has led me to uh, say my classroom is uh, whoever has access to the internet and whoever is interested in reading. So I teach through my books. I teach through uh, uh, extensive speaking um, engagements across the country and online through uh, my writing and just 
random videos. So if you follow my social media at Jamar Tisby or my Facebook page, um, Jamar Tisby and the number one, then you can see all my rantings and ravings uh, as I try to um, talk about mainly our racial and religious landscape mm -hmm. from a historical perspective. Um, so along the way, I've had the opportunity to write two books with a third forthcoming, as you mentioned, and they all really fit together well. Yeah. So The Color of Compromise is a survey of uh, the church's complicity in racism from the colonial era up to the present day. So it's, 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 it's really heavily focused on history, but I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a compelling narrative. So it just, it reads um, smoothly. It won't read like some heavy history textbook, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then the follow-up to that is how to fight racism, which is in response to the question I get most frequently, which is what do we do? Mm. Uh, people want to be part of the solution. They realize there's a problem. They want to do something about it, but they're not quite sure how to get started. Yeah. And then the third mm. book, How to Fight Racism, is adapted for young readers ages 8 to 12, right around that fourth through sixth grade age, because so many of us as adults say, I never knew. Yeah. Or we say, I wish I would have known this sooner. Yeah. And here's our chance yeah. to, to help the next generation uh, know earlier than we did. Yeah. I so one of the things that I love about your book and you immediately get into it and I think it's such a simple but profound premise that all of us should be as Christians, believers, high-fiving. Yes, 100% this is true. But then we don't see it lived out sometimes. Um and so I want to just read what you wrote because I was just high-fiving you as you as you wrote it. But it says, um, some of God's attributes, such as God's omniscience and omnipotence, do not extend to human beings. But God has crowned human beings with glory and honor. As God's image bearers, all people have innate dignity and worth. This is my favorite. God's fingerprints rest upon every single person without restriction. The image of God extends to black and white people, men and women, rich and poor, incarcerated and free, queer and straight, documented and undocumented, non-disabled and disabled, powerful and oppressed. All people equally bear the likeness of God and thus possess incalculable value. Mm. Easy, like, yeah. like simple, right? We know, we know this. But sometimes we don't live it out. Talk about that. So that passage is just a brief sort of exploration of the doctrine of the image of God. Mm -hmm. And to me, if there is to be a reformation of the church in the 21st century, the doctrine of the image of God would be at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. um, think about it. We live in the most multiracial, multilingual, multinational uh country on the planet. I mean, literally the nations at our doorstep. And we also live in a nation that had as one of its central core beliefs, uh, white people were superior to people of color and particularly to black people. So when those two ideas collide, we get what we get, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so, so we never really learned, um, particularly people in power, how to understand the incalculable value mm. and worth 
of all people. And that is a doctrine of the image of God from Genesis 1, uh, very first book of the Bible, very first chapter, God is saying, human beings are my creation yeah. and they're precious to me and we need to treat each other like mm -hmm. that. But then what gets in the way is um, all of these prejudices and all of these assumptions about other people, which is part of why I wrote the book. So one of the things that I always love our guests, what I want them to say to me is here's a three-step process of how to teach your kids to whatever, you know, I have someone on for to love others. And what obviously we've both seen is that it really starts with us, the parents. It starts with yeah. the yeah. adults. Um, it's not just because so much of our kids, they don't have those prejudices. They don't have that. It's, it's because they've grown up with it or, you know, um, a lot of times we just need to learn from the children, right? We just need to learn um, from them. So in your book, you have a blueprint that I feel like is so simple. Because when you look at the title, How to Fight Racism, um, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Towards Racial Justice, that could mean a lot of things. And maybe could over even overwhelm, like, oh, my gosh, that's so much stuff. But you make a very simple blueprint, which is the ARC. Um, that I'd like you to talk about, because I feel like those three things, if I can take those three pieces, live them out myself and a, be an example to my kids and teach my kids these three things, that is the start of something beautiful. Can you talk yes. to us about that? Yes. So I noticed a, a few problems in this conversation about racial justice. You know, the first problem, of course, is racists <laughs> themselves uh, constantly pushing back, uh, making life hard um, to, to change. things. And then, you know, beyond that, even among uh, the coalition of the willing, particularly among writers and advocates like myself, um, when it comes to the practical, we, we, we don't address it as much as people probably need. So we're we're heavy on the diagnosis and sort of light on the prescription, if you will. Um, and, you know, we can describe the problem really well, sociologically, historically, you know, personal biography, all of that. But when it comes to actually saying, well, OK, what do we do? There's relatively little information, like if it's in a book, it's, you know, a paragraph or two at the end of a chapter or one chapter at the end of a book. Right. Um, the other problem we run into is. It really when when we do recommend things to do, it's really hard to enact. And and by that, I mean, um, it's hard to hold together. Right. Like it's it's lists of things. It's it's uh, areas that are are diverse and, and connected, but not all sort of coherent. It's, so when I was a teacher, <laughs> I was never a great teacher, but um, I got really, really good at, at one thing. And that was knowing when something I was saying was going in one ear and out the other. Okay. You could sort of see the glaze, <laughs> see the glaze over, right? <laughs> yes. You could see they're getting fidgety and yeah. all of that. And whenever people would ask me that question, well, what do we do? I would get that same response from adults mm. because I was just like giving out random scattershot. Well, try this. You should do this. Or I read this article and now that's top of mind. And I was like, I had this sense that, Nobody can walk out of here and do something with that because so it's good. just not coherent. Okay. So that's where the arc of racial justice comes in. So the value of a book like How to Fight Racism, which does prioritize the practical, every chapter is going to have practical things that you can take action on. Sure. But I think the real value of a book like How to Fight Racism is the framework 
the arc of racial yeah. justice, which allows yeah. you to 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 think about racial justice in a different way. So let me unpack what that is. Yes, I mean, yes please. It's, yeah. a, it's an acronym um, that stands for awareness, relationships, commitment, awareness, relationships, commitment. And I think like the legs of a stool, you need all three to have a stable foundation on which to build your racial justice efforts. So awareness, that's building your knowledge about mm. race, racism, and white supremacy. It's all the things we do to gain information from listening to this podcast, to watching documentaries, to reading books, to visiting museums. All of that's great. We saw a huge uptick in 2020 of people trying to build their knowledge about race. They, they bought up books like The Color of Compromise to do that. That's all in the awareness category, mm. but we know that's not enough. You know, it's not enough to just know enough, know a lot about it. You got to do something. Um, the next part. Can and I by stop the way, you on that part? Linear... Sorry, real yes. quick on the awareness. Can I dig into that just a bit? Um, yes, yes. So if I'm a parent and I just, and you might not have it offhand, but if you even email me later, I can stick it in the show notes. If I'm a parent and I'm hearing the awareness part and I literally have nowhere to start, like I sit here and I think, okay, I what if I don't know any, you know, authors that I would read or whatever? What would you say, I mean, would be that first step for a parent who's listening and saying, I want to teach my kids about this history. History is not just context. One of the things that I love that you say in here, and I love that you're a historian, is that history matters. That on page 63, you say history is not just something to be read. It does not refer merely to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from a fact that we carry it within us are controlled by it unconsciously and history is in present is present in all we do history is alive and so we got to we have to have that awareness but where where would i start if i'm just sitting here listening and i'm like okay i want to be aware i want to start that first part what's what's something i could do like super practical yeah that's great that's that that james baldwin quote which i love so um first awareness it can be any category of knowledge right so but I'm biased, but I also think it's very important. Start with history. Mm -hmm. um, you could start with a book like The Color of Compromise if you wanted to, to look into race and religion. But when you're talking about history, start close to home. And so uh, the, you could just do a Google search of books about your state, your mm -hmm. city, your county, um, about uh, you know any topic really that's near and dear. One of the things historians say that um, everything has a history. So if you are looking into the history of like incarceration or the history of, um, you know, uh, healthcare, whatever, literally start with that. And you don't even have to start with books. Um, there, if you haven't been to a museum or a cultural mm -hmm. center near you, right? Like that's a place to start. Um, the National Museum of African American History and Culture just launched uh, virtual tours. So you can actually visit that, which is in DC, mm -hmm. and do that mm -hmm. online. And and so I say, start with history, start with what you're passionate about, and, and that's a good place to begin the journey. I love that you said where it's like where you live. When we moved to Waco, I had no idea that one of the worst lynchings of Jesse Washington mm -hmm. was here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Brian yeah. Stevenson um, took the even the dirt and it's in their uh, museum right now. I had no right. idea when we moved here. You just, you know, and I had no idea, you know, in the school we work with, which is across the bridge, you know, that that was the mm. place where 
black people were for years and across the bridge they had to come across the you know it was just so separate and you can still see pieces of that today which is so interesting because i you know work there and see it in such a a huge way and so i love that you said where you are so so wherever you live start there and i remember weeping reading this article and seeing the pictures and then being Mm -hmm. able to share that with my kids in an appropriate way obviously they're younger but still being able to say hey this didn't happen so long ago um so thank you for saying that i love that okay sorry that's great yep so um the next uh part of the arc is relationships and and this is something as people of faith that we should understand deeply because um throughout scripture, it teaches us all reconciliation is relational. Mm -hmm. And so God, when God wanted to reconcile a people, didn't send a tweet or a TikTok video. (laughs) God sent the son. God sent Jesus, a person to develop relationship with us. Right. And, and there is that principle, I think applies to, um, racial justice as well, that the reason why we're pursuing this is people. Mm. Let's not lose the the focus on people. And for white folks especially, because historically white people have set up so many barriers between themselves and black people and people of color, it's going to take incredible intentionality mm. to break down those barriers, build bridges, have more um, racially and ethnically diverse social networks, um, but also empathize, learn, understand from people whose experiences are different than yours. Um, the This this one, when you talked about this in your book, this is where life change happened for me. So relationships. Mm. It's always relationships. It's always being in the life of someone else and mm. seeing what they're going through. And, you know, all of the different thoughts that I may have had about someone or a group of people or whatever – is just yeah, because yeah. I don't know it because I didn't know anyone. Then when I actually knew someone who this was their life and this is what they were yep. going through, all of those other thoughts that I had were just my experience. I didn't have their experience. So to hear their story, that is what moves you. That is what changes your yep. heart. That is what opens, you know, has opened my heart. And that is my dream for families is to get out of their comfort zone and build friendship and kinship with those who are different and hear their stories because that is when your heart truly can can empathize um, with, with another. So I love that you said that. And as you talk about relationships and you think of our audience, maybe just sitting here and going, oh, man, I don't have a relationship with someone who is a different culture or, you know, uh, color or whatever. What's kind of that tangible first step? you know, for them, if they're listening to this. Yep. It's going to be contextual. So, so where you are matters, but, um, it's again, the principle of starting close to home Mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways. Right. So, um, even though in our social networks, it may be predominantly, let's say white, um, you probably know some people who are not white how intentional have you been in building those mm-hmm. relationships, right? Have, have have you had a phone call with the person? Have you interacted with them besides just work or school or something? Um, have you really gotten to know them? And, and that's one step, right? Start with folks you already know. Another step is 
attending or or paying attention to the things that we think are only for mm. one specific ethnic group, right? So 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 like a Mexican Heritage Festival or mm. Hispanic Heritage Month or Black History Month, right? That's actually not just for the people group um, involved. That's as a matter of fact, those people groups, we want you to interact. We want you to learn. We want you to know more about it. Bring your family, bring your kids to those kinds of things. Uh, could be a museum, could be a, a march, could be a, a parade or a festival. Um, and another way is, I mean, you just have to continually put yourself in the way of where diversity happens. So that could be shopping at a different store, mm, grocery store. Good. That could be um, that could be joining the city league instead of the church league. You know, you, you got to find where different kinds of people are and, um, it, like you're doing right. Like volunteering at a school, that's a great way because you not only get to know the kids, you probably interact with some of the parents and the adults mm -hmm. and the teachers. So it's just really sitting back and saying, what is in my network that I haven't accessed in terms of mm -hmm. Uh, finding people with different kinds of experiences. I love what you just said. And that can be uncomfortable. Like if, you know, you're listening, all these things are not like, oh, this is so easy to do. I think I'll just pop into, you know, a different place that it can be uncomfortable, but that's the point. I mean, it's okay to be uncomfortable, right? It's okay. We um, recently, so we work at, you know, in a school in East Waco, and one of my volunteers is the pastor at a prominent um, African-American church in East Waco. And I love them so much. They're some of my favorite volunteers. And so I had my family, and this is just so crazy to me that I've, we've never done this, but we went to their church a couple Sundays ago. Mm. Yes, it yes, was yes. amazing. I'm like, this should be every white person who goes to yes. their normal whatever churches. And our church is diverse, but it's not. It's different. It's we needed to go there. And it was so awesome. Like, I mean, my kids loved it. I said, we're going here. I mean, once a month, like we are coming here and we are loving it. I mean, just even the differences in in culture of like all the things it was so beautiful the way that they talked about scripture Absolutely. and the way they prayed and uh the music minister is now one of my volunteers at the school and oh my gosh i'm like can you teach me piano and can you teach me to sing and mm -hmm. it's just i just love i sat there with a grin on my face under my mask <laughs> like you could just see my eyes just grinning and I just I loved it and I love that experience for our family and my little girl who's 10 she goes mom she goes when can we come back and I wow. said real soon so just something that was so simple that was like an hour of our time but blessed me you know helped me build relationships and I just I loved it so that's another just example I don't know how you feel about that but I I loved that that was such a neat experience for our family that's really good. That's really good. Um, when you think about it, how many opportunities, especially if you're white, but even for me as a black person um, who's been in a lot of predominantly white institutions, how seldom it is that we actually get un to sit under the leadership and guidance of black people and people of color. Yes. Right. So so it really takes a degree of uh, conscientiousness as well as humility um, because when you go to a church like that, right, it's not a, a church that's outside of your sort of cultural experience. Mm -hmm. It's not just like, um, you know, 
from the outside looking in like a fishbowl. Ooh, look at look at this exotic, you know, worship. (laughs) It's about, okay, I'm hearing worship and music and preaching and prayer through the lens and experience of another Mm. people group. And I'm in a healthy sort of biblical way. Um submitting to that leadership, allowing myself to be led mm-hmm. by people um, who I don't traditionally have uh, that experience with. So and that's what is really, that's what, that's what's really revolutionary, right? And it's how like much richer was it for people... me even like to, to yeah, see that exactly. I, it was so rich. I saw it in a whole different view, like how I would see scripture maybe from my church reading or whatever and see right. Pastor Hunter reading it the way he did. And then this older gentleman, like almost in tears when he's you know, Mm. praying a prayer that maybe I would hear somewhere else that I'd be like, Oh yeah, that was a good prayer. I mean, this was like, I just, I can't even tell you. It was, it was so rich for all of us. I mean, there's a, there's a different, um, so people come to, to God and to scripture with different questions. And often those questions are based on their experience. And so when you go to a, um, worship service, uh, with a people group that historically has been oppressed and marginalized, guess what? They've approached God Mm. with different questions, right? Um, Black people often approach God from the perspective of the book of Exodus and the literal liberation of Hebrew captives from slavery, right? Mm. Because that's been our historical experience. Well, the legacy of that and the way that has shaped our worship is quite distinct. But the truly revolutionary part in a sort of white supremacist centered society is when white people understand they can be led and follow the lead of people who are not white. Mm -hmm. That's subversive in our culture, you know, that we could actually take as authoritative the theology coming from black preachers and teachers and church mothers, right? So that's the, the, the sort of internal shift that I think, um, you know, worshiping broadly helps us make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it broadens our perspective with so much. I mean, even having them there as volunteers for me, our whole purpose and what we do with mentoring is reading. So we're helping these kids read because we know that if they don't read by fifth grade on grade level, the stats are, I mean, tremendous of them being incarcerated, you know, not having a job, all these different things. And so it is so important to this pastor and his, you know, who live in that area, who've seen it happen before. And it is, they are so passionate about helping these kids read on grade level because they have seen it over and over and over again, what happens and how the system is set up in such a way. And, but, it, but hearing him say it and like me, you know what I mean? Like I, <laughs> I live here. And he lives here and he's seen it in such a different way that I've seen it. So to see it through his eyes makes me so much more passionate about it than I even was before. Does that make sense? And I think that's the beauty of seeing something through someone else's eyes is that, you know, you might have had a heart for something before, but when I see it through Pastor Hunter's eyes and see it through his experience and everyone else's experience that he's led through here, when I see it through his lens and through his experience, that's when my passion grows even more. And that's so right. that's why that's right. that's the relationship piece to me is is everything. Okay, sorry, I could talk about that forever. Um, take us to commitment, the C. So 
I think where the what I'm calling the evangelical racial reconciliation movement from about the early 1990s to the early 2010s um, did a lot of interesting things, uh, bringing people together uh, across racial and ethnic uh, backgrounds. But one of the things that got wrong is that it fundamentally defined the problem of racism as one of individual interpersonal attitudes. Mm. So it's one person not liking another person. And therefore, the solution is, well, let's all get together and be nice to one another, um, which is not bad. I mean, you know, the biblical frame is is kindness, not niceness. But um, that's necessary, but not sufficient, right? Like, I'm not saying be mean <laughs> to me, be, <laughs> be kind. But at the same time, you know, the, the, the pulpit swap isn't going to do anything about the crisis of mass incarceration. The um, hiring that staff member isn't really going to do anything about the fact that uh, black mothers die in maternity related deaths at three times the rate of white women. Mm -hmm. Those are systemic issues. And you have to fight systemic injustice with systemic justice. That's where commitment comes in. Commitment is about changing the laws and the policies. Commitment is about uh, the change that we desire lasting far beyond our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And that can only come when we change the way society is set up. And so there are several issues that I think as Christians we should be concerned about um, as matters of justice, as matters of loving our neighbor, as matters of changing systemic racism. One is voting rights. Isn't it interesting that in the 1950s and 60s, one of the main issues was protecting uh, the right to vote for, for black people and other people of color. And here we are in the 2020s, still trying to fight for the right mm -hmm. uh, that everyone who should vote can vote, you know? Um, another issue is the criminal legal system. A lot of advocates call it the criminal legal system, not the criminal justice system, because they're not the same thing. Uh, everything from policing to the courts to incarceration, the entire system is really set up if you go back far enough, in many ways, it's really set up as a replacement or an evolution slash de-evolution of slavery. The, the monitoring of black bodies and black movement, the assumption of threat and suspicion, the punitive and very violent physical nature of um, policing and incarceration, a legal system that is has this uh, card stacked against people of color and the poor. Um, I really do believe that if we survive long enough, we'll look back decades from now on the current legal system as just about as heinous as we now see the race-based chattel slavery. Mm. The brutality inflicted upon image bearers, whether they've broken a law or are innocent or whatever, it's just unconscionable. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's that. There's, I mean, even climate change is an issue that has um, racial implications because often the environmental degradation is worst among 
the poorest people who are often uh, black people and other people of color. So take your pick, <laughs> you know, I mean, it can be anything um, that that sort of bugs you, that's a pebble in your shoe mm -hmm. in terms of a justice matter. All I'm saying is we can't sort of um, handshake and cups of coffee our way out of this problem. Uh, we have to change laws and rules and policies and systems. I think um, when I hear, like for our listeners who are listening, and I w want them to just read the book, that's probably easier <laughs> for them to hear it on, to read it on their own. Um, but all of these different things are things that we can do right now, you know, in, in our different yeah. areas. I'm not saying you have to do all of them like tomorrow. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. it's little baby steps. But when we... When you think of your youth edition, I want you just to touch on that just a bit. Help us as parents uh, understand what what you're going to do in that to help our kids. And I would love, I want to read that with my 13-year-old um, so yes. that it's not just him reading it and, and trying to understand it, but that I'm alongside with him. And I don't have all these things. The commitment, the, like, we're just starting in this. We've done this, you know. Yes. we're just starting we're just journeying we're not going to have it all right but right. there you know i think sometimes people are afraid to start something anything really um and fear that they're not going to be perfect at it and fear that they're going to get it wrong and what i would say to that is just start just start in these yes. whatever area it is just start Precisely. That's why the metaphor of a journey is really important. Um, we're at different points in our journey. We're moving at different paces. And I hope it gives us some grace toward ourselves, right? Like racism is a really big problem. Yeah. A lot of smart, capable people have dedicated and even sacrificed their lives to, to try to change things. And so um, it is difficult. And if it feels difficult, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It just means it's a really hard problem, right? Mm -hmm. And you're right. The, the 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 thing to do is to start. The other thing that just occurred to me as you're talking is realizing that we've already done this in different areas in different ways, right? Like when it comes to to getting our kids involved, people have been the the, the scout troop leader, or they've joined the the parent teacher association, or they've helped their kids come up with the proverbial lemonade stand, right? <laughs> Whatever it is, right? Like you've actually got the skills and the tools necessary, which doesn't mean you can't learn more and get better. But, you know, when it comes to teaching your kids, when it comes to, you know, guiding them, when it comes to supporting their dreams, you've probably done it in other areas. Now you're just applying it mm -hmm. to this really sensitive area of race, right? So, what I love about the, the Young Readers Edition, it is prime to, um, it's a great excuse to start the conversation and to start action, right? If you're looking for that first step, yeah. get the Young Readers Edition. It's available for pre-order now, wherever books are sold. It comes out January 4th. You read that along with your young person. You can read the adult version or uh, the the kids version along with them. There's even an audio book. Um, so, you know, my, my child does, is not super excited about sitting down with a book right now, but he might listen to the audio book, yeah. um, for the adult version, there's a video series that you can watch. And then what are the, some of the things that I'm saying? Well, actually you've already taken a step by listening to this podcast, because really the first step to, to helping our kids learn about race is you learning about race. Yeah. So yeah. equipping yourself. 
um, is a great first step. And then from there, um, really looking for the organic points in a child's life where you can um, help them understand race. So a lot of times parents are asking, adults are asking, when is when should I do it? Kids will come to you sometimes with questions mm-hmm. um, or with situations from school, sports, clubs, activities, whatever. If they're asking about it, it's a it's beyond time to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I just want to give folks confidence. Like you can do this. You can absolutely have these conversations, even if your own background hasn't been the best. Um, you can be part of pre- breaking a cycle of ignorance and apathy and complacency. And it doesn't mean you have to do it perfectly. It just means you have to practice. Yeah. And the only way to get better is to keep doing it. Yeah. I love that you said that. And thank you for giving us permission for those of us who maybe haven't started this conversation or are too nervous to have this conversation for fear we might say something wrong or um, do it wrong or, you know, all the things, because this should be a very simple thing, not a simple thing to talk about, but something that we want to talk about, especially as believers that we want to get right, that we want to talk about, that we want to help our kids understand. And yet, because it's become so politicized and because it's become so this side and this side, it it gets jumbled with so many other things that sometimes now we are fearful to to jump in this conversation or to have it with our yeah. kids. And so thank you for giving us permission to mess up, to um, just start and that we can do it because I really believe that yeah. that we can and, and we can make a difference when we do. So thank and you so me, much. Let me also say that um, as a real practical matter, when that fear starts to crop up, Am I going to say the wrong thing? Mm-hmm. I don't know enough. This is delicate. Another another way to think about it is to think about those victimized by racism. Mm-hmm. It can be paralyzing to think about having these conversations, taking action around racism. But imagine the burden for black people and people of color who have to sit with the results of racism and the results of our inaction and our hesitancy, right? Like, so it's about recentering. So we often talk about marginalized people. That means they're on the outskirts. So one of the things we have to do is take folks from the outskirts and make them central in our action, in our attitudes, right? And when we take those who have been marginalized, victimized, oppressed, take them as central in the story, take them as central in our decision-making process. I think we actually come to different decisions. That's what's motivated me. Yeah. It's not some incredible courage, right? It's the fact that people are being actively harmed. Mm-hmm. And I cannot let my own fear and hesitancy, which is in a way, you know, sort of self-focused. It's also focused on those in power. I can't help, I can't let those fears get in the way of me doing whatever I can to prevent harm to to those who are most adversely impacted, uh, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Basically, in a nice way, you're saying what I want to say is it ain't about us. <laughs> it's not about us. In a very sweet <laughs> way, in a lot. very sweet way, you said that. But what really is not about us. And I think I think that's so beautiful that you just said that, because it's true. Like when we take the 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 
the blinders off for just a second and think about what we're feeling, hey, it's not even about us. It's about how we can serve and love and help bring justice uh, to others. So thank you for that. Um, I appreciate it so much. And I appreciate your conversation with us today. It has been a blast and a joy. Your your heart and your passion for um, adults and kids really comes through. So So what a privilege. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this very important conversation with Jamar Tisby. I encourage you to go get his book, How to Fight Racism, and get the Young Readers Edition. Read it with your kids. That comes out January 4th. Now, the Below Quick Tip is my favorite thing about the episode, and it's really how does this conversation inspire us to action? He gave us three things, the A for awareness, the R uh, in ARC for relationships, and the C for commitment. I would say go back and listen to those and how he broke those down and pick one of those letters, awareness, relationship, commitment, and figure out how you and your family can do one of those things. For awareness, it could be as simple as looking up the history of African Americans in your city, in your town, the things that are closest to you. Sometimes you don't even realize what has happened in your history because you don't know. You haven't looked it up. And so I would encourage you first to be aware. The second thing, relationships, finding a way that you can build relationship with others who are different than you. That could be volunteering somewhere. That could be like our family. We went to uh, African-American a spiritual service, church, where it was completely different, but it was so rich and so wonderful. And commitment, maybe find a way that you can commit as a family that you're going to come alongside any injustice um, and talk about that as a family. So those are the beloved quick tips that you can do from this conversation. But I encourage you to go back and listen to how he breaks all of those down. Thanks again for journeying with us and thank you for being love and doing good in your community. See you next week. Rescue me.